Luke's Gospel, chapter 16 tonight. For those of you that are new to our Tuesday Night Refuel Bible Study, we are in the midst of a year-long study, chapter by chapter, of the Gospel of Luke. And so we left off in December with Luke 15, and we're picking it right back up this year in Luke chapter 16. We will be finished with Luke sometime around April. And then we've got another exciting series to begin on Tuesday nights. So Luke chapter 16, one of the things that I love, obviously as a teacher, about the Gospel of Luke is out of all four Gospels, the Gospel of Luke contains more of Jesus' teachings than any of the other Gospels. He truly is the master teacher. And you'll notice in chapter 1, Jesus was talking to his disciples. And let's remember again what the word disciple means. It literally means learner in the Greek language. One who is increasing. One who is learning. One who is being taught. Therefore, one who is teachable. And so in this month that we're... Now I'm linking messages. It it amazes me how God does that. But I want to go back to what we're doing on Sunday mornings too in 1 Thessalonians. And I want to affirm you all on Tuesday night that you all are teachable and you're here because you want to learn and you want to be taught and you want to grow in the knowledge of God's Word. That's what a disciple is. And Jesus said in the Great Commission to go into all the world and make disciples, not to make converts, not simply to bring people to faith in Christ, but to make disciples. And disciples are learners just like you. And so Jesus was teaching his learners, his followers, those who were interested in being taught. And what he is teaching on in this chapter is he's teaching on life. And he wants the disciples, he wants his followers, he wants them to learn to every once in a while reflect on life, their life, this precious fragile gift that God has given to them. Because if we don't every once in a while sit down and think about our life, I think we're going to miss out on what this life could be. In fact, I want to share a challenge with you all tonight. I would like you to consider... And I know this might not seem like a lot to some of you, but if you haven't done this up to this point, it would be. Would you be willing to set aside 15 minutes every week, every week, 15 minutes, to get alone, no distractions, nothing, and to think about your life for 15 minutes a week? Do you know there's a whole book of the Bible that is devoted to us thinking about our life? It's the book of Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament. It's all about looking at life under the sun and thinking about it and thinking, where is my life and where am I headed and what's my life looking like right now? And and, and one of the things that God wants to do when when we think about our life, is to, to remind us that through Him, 
if, if our life isn't going in the direction that He wants it to, if it's not going, you know, in the trajectory that He wants, we can always, through Him, make the changes that need to be made. Maybe we need to ask God for just the strength and the courage to make those changes, but we're never stuck with God. In our life, we can seem at times like we're stuck in a certain situation, and that's the enemy. The enemy wants us to think we're stuck. We're in a corner. We can't get out. We're trapped. That's what Satan will seek to do, even to God's children. And we have to realize as God's children, we are never stuck. I mean, even think of how that's illustrated in the Old Testament in the story of of Moses and the children of Israel who are backed up to the Red Sea. And it looks like there's no way out. They're stuck. Here comes Pharaoh and the armies of Egypt, and they're dead. And God parts the Red Sea. Because he wants to show his children, you're never stuck with me. You just need to let God infuse you with the courage and strength maybe to make some changes in your life and to take your life on a completely different course. That's why it's so cool to start out a new year and, and to really try to rally people even on Tuesday nights because obviously over the year and especially around the holidays, our Tuesday night attendance starts to wane. I, I get that. But I really believe that Tuesday night as well as Sunday, I, I just believe these are precious times. I, you know, we only get 52 Sundays and 52 Tuesdays every year. And maybe that seems like a lot to some of you, but to me, that's not that much. That's just a couple hours every week that we get to do this together. And I think it's precious, precious time. So anyway, that's what this chapter is about. Thinking about life and seeing life from certain perspectives. And obviously in the first 13 verses, by the way, I forgot to mention this. For some of you, we have notes on Tuesday night, sort of an outline There are extras laying around the tables. Uh, If you'd like one, please grab yourself one. If we need to start making more, we will. Thank you. They're also attached to the podcast on Tuesday night. So if you go out there and listen to the podcast, you will have this. Praise God, these things are happening. I don't even know about it. All right. Really cool. So the first thing that Jesus wants his followers, disciples to see is that life is a stewardship. That all of life is a stewardship. That everything we have has been entrusted to us by God. Everything. And so every once in a while we need to go, what has God entrusted me with? What is God wanting me right now to manage? What is he wanting me to be a steward over? And in order to encourage stewardship and seeing life as a stewardship, notice what he shares. He says, there was a rich man who was informed of accusations that his manager was wasting his assets. So he called the manager in and said to him, what is that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your administration because you can no longer be my manager. Then the manager said to himself, what should I do since my master is taking my position away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm too ashamed to beg. I know what to do so that when I am put out of management, people will welcome me into their homes. So he contacted his master's debtors one by one. He asked the first, how much do you owe my master? The man replied, a hundred measures of olive oil. The manager said to him, take your bill, sit down quickly and write 50. I'd like to run into this guy. 
Then he said to another, how much do you owe? The second man replied, a hundred measures of wheat. The manager said to him, take your bill and write 80. The master commended the dishonest manager because he acted shrewdly. For people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their contemporaries than the people of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by how you use worldly wealth so that when it runs out, you will be welcomed into the eternal homes. The one who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. The one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you haven't been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, Who will entrust to you the true riches? If you haven't been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. A couple things that I wanted to share with you tonight out of this passage, again, seeing life as a stewardship. The first is that I think Jesus wants us to be aware of future accountability. Just like this manager was called to give an account of his stewardship, of his administration, of his management of this uh, ruler's household affairs, we're going to be having to give an account of our stewardship before God one day. We're going to have to give the reasons for and the explanation of why we did certain things or didn't do certain things. It's part of what we're going to be responsible for. When we stand before the Lord. And so again, we should then be aware that if I see life as an accountability and if if I see life as a stewardship, I need to every once in a while take stock of my life in this area and say, how well am I managing what God has given me? Instead of asking or putting more on my plate, how well am I handling what I've already got? That's why I encourage Christians... Going back again to Sunday's message, even about service, we want Christians to serve. It's part of our spiritual growth. It's part of being a healthy Christian. But Christians even can get to the point where they are serving out of balance, in a sense, and they're taking on too much to do anything well. And instead of taking something else on your plate, make sure that what you already have on your plate is something that you're doing well. Now, some are going to disagree with these priorities, but I believe that biblically I can prove these, so that's why I believe in them so strongly. I think when it comes to priorities, obviously for every Christian, our first priority is our personal relationship with God, number one. Second is our family. That's the second priority. But now here's where it's going to rub some of you. The third priority I believe, is our brothers and sisters in Christ. And so we have to go, how am I even with just those three? Am I okay managing my personal relationship with God? How about whatever family God is holding me responsible for, for managing or overseeing or being a steward of? And then beyond that, I think he's going to look at our relationship with one another Can I just tell you, you know I've been a little excited about this series in 1 Thessalonians on Sunday. Oh, these next three weeks, I can hardly stand myself. I am so excited to share what God has to say through the Apostle Paul to the Thessalonian church because it's, it's, if I could say it this way, 
It's why we're attempting to do what we do here at the Oasis. It's why we are the church we are. It's why the values, it's why we have the values that we do. It's why we have the priorities that we do. If people were to ask me as the pastor, why is the Oasis like this? Or why is it not like this? Or whatever. I would say, read First Thessalonians. It answers those questions. Today, this Sunday, we're going to be talking about the signs of spiritual fellowship. And building on the signs of of uh, spiritual service, the signs of spiritual growth, and the signs of spiritual life that we've already talked about. So beware of future accountability. Second, willingness to sacrifice short-term for long-term gain. This is one of the most difficult passages to, to interpret. But I think what's happening here is simply this. I think that the servant, the manager, was dishonest. That's why he was going to get let go after he gave an account. There was no chance of him keeping his job. But in the meantime, you'll notice he says, hmm... I don't have the physical attributes to do a lot of manual labor. Uh, I'm too proud to beg. So I got to figure out how I can make friends with my master's debtors in order that somehow after I get let go, uh, I'm going to be in their good graces so that I can continue somehow. And so he tells them he reduces their bill. Now, I don't think he took anything from his manager. I think that's why the manager sort of commends him. I think what he was doing if you study this, is he was taking his commission and he was knocking his commission, what he would have earned off of these transactions, off of the bill. So in a sense, he was saying, I'm not going to make any money off of these people, but because I'm willing to sacrifice my commission in the short term, I'm going to build a relationship with them where after I get let go by this guy, instead of them coming back to him, they're going to come to me. Now, obviously, Jesus isn't commending any dishonesty here. He would never do that. What he is saying is, in principle, the, the, the shrewdness of this manager was that he was willing to sacrifice in the short term for the long term. And that's something Jesus wants to build into his followers. He wants us to live for eternity, not for the here and now. He wants us to lay up treasure in heaven, not treasure on earth. He wants us to have that kind of mindset. That's what a good steward of Jesus Christ will do. We will be willing to sacrifice in the short term for long-term gain. But we live in a culture and we live in a world where we want it. We want it now. We're not patient. Uh, it's, it's get it and get it now. It's instant gratification. And that is not working into being a good steward of Jesus Christ. Third, Seeing life as a stewardship requires continual vigilance. That's what the word shrewd means in verse 8. The, the master commended that he acted shrewdly. And then Jesus even says, the people of this world, that's a pretty important statement. That in a sense he's saying, unbelievers tend to be more shrewd in dealing with their contemporaries than the people of light, my own people. Wow. In other words, they're more vigilant about even temporal things. About knowing what affects them and how they're affected than sometimes Christians are. It's like, again, do we really take time to see where our life is going and how we're managing life and all of that? And Jesus says, many times, people who don't even have a relationship with God are better at being vigilant about where their life is going and, and, and what they want out of life and all that than the people of light are. And so he says, we need to learn to use temporal things to impact the eternal. Which is what he says here in verse 9 when he says, I tell you, make friends for yourselves by how you use worldly wealth. 
so that when it runs out, you will be welcomed into the eternal homes. In other words, he's just simply saying, Christians have to learn to see how they can invest their worldly resources to impact eternity. That's seeing life as a stewardship. How we manage our worldly resources, how we manage money, how we manage the things that God blesses us with, as far as how are we somehow leveraging them to impact eternity. That's seeing life as a steward of God. So Jesus goes on to say, as we already read, faithfulness and handling worldly resources opens up greater spiritual responsibility. Because in Jesus' mind, worldly resources are not that important. And so that's why Jesus says, if you can't handle worldly wealth, why would God entrust to you true riches, true, true spiritual responsibility? You and I have to, as Christians, learn to be able to handle worldly resources and worldly wealth first, and then God will give us greater spiritual responsibility. That's why he says in verse 11, if you haven't been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will entrust you with the true riches? And then Jesus reminds us that what we possess is not our own. When he says, verse 12, if you haven't been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you your own? And God always wants us to see that everything we have is a gift from him. He's our source. He's the one that entrusts us with everything. And, And again, we've got to see it that way. It's not ours. We can't be possessive of it. We've got to remember that from God's perspective, as as stewards, I've got to learn as a disciple of Jesus Christ to see how can I use the things that God has given me to bless others, to impact eternity, to reach people for Christ, to build up my Christian brothers and sisters. How can I do that? And then, obviously, he ends this passage by reminding us single-mindedness is really the key to good stewardship. When he says, no man can serve two masters. If if our mindset and our heart is really about amassing worldly treasure and worldly wealth and whatever, then obviously we're not going to be a good spiritual steward. Because it's going to be all about material, temporal things. And God wants to get us to the point where really the key is, if I just give my heart and surrender to Jesus Christ and make him the Lord of my life and let him run the show and run my life and be the master, then the stewardship will take care of itself. I will learn to listen to the promptings of the Holy Spirit. I will learn what the Word of God teaches and the principles within the Word of God. And I will yield to those principles because the Word of God will have weight and authority in my life. We're going to talk about that Sunday too. It's amazing how these things just interweave. All right, enough of that. I got 20 minutes. Seeing life as a revealer of the heart, verses 14 through 18. The Pharisees who loved money heard all this and ridiculed him. Notice there I put the heart is in the right place when it responds properly to conviction. And you and I, part of what Jesus is trying to get us to see too is that the way we live, the way others live, really does reveal their heart. That's why Jesus could say to his followers, by their fruit, you will know them. What is on the inside is revealed by how people live. 
And the Pharisees here were revealing what kind of heart they had because instead of listening to the words of Jesus and yielding to it and saying, you're right, they ridiculed him. The word ridiculed means to deride, to sneer at, to scoff at. Now think about that. Jesus, the Lord of glory, had people while he was teaching sneer and scoff at him. Wow. I've had some people fall asleep while I teach. And I probably have had some people sneer and scoff, but I'm nowhere close to Jesus. I think, wow. How hard were their hearts? That they were listening to to one that you and I, I think, if, if you're like me, I would give anything to sit down and have Jesus teach me. And yet, can I say, he is. This is his word to us. Notice Jesus also says, he's looking for a heart that is real and transparent because he goes on to say in verse 15, you are the ones who justify yourselves in men's eyes. But God knows your heart. We need to be careful that we don't try to seek validation from men and try to play the game and look good in front of men, but God knows what's really going on in our hearts and lives. God looks for reality. God looks for transparency. And again, the religious leaders of Israel were not that. God looks for a heart that cares more about what God thinks and what others thinks. When he says, for what is highly prized among men is utterly detestable in God's sight. We're going to talk about this more on Sunday. Do we care more about what others think? And can I just say that there's always pressure there. You know, none of us likes to... None of us likes to upset people and most of us don't look for a fight and, and we, don't, we don't like conflict and we don't, we don't like confrontation and we don't like all that. But part of the dynamic of relationships in our life really tests our allegiance to God. Are we going to compromise what God says and what God's Word says in order to keep peace or, or just you know, enable somebody to continue in bad behavior or whatever? Or are we going to love them enough to tell them the truth. The Bible says, faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. And so many times we compromise what God says or what God thinks because we care more about what they think of us. And then Jesus talks about a heart that applies itself wholeheartedly when he says the law and the prophets were enforced until John, since then the good news of the kingdom of God has been proclaimed and everyone is urged to enter in. The words urged to enter in literally mean to apply oneself, to put one's all into it. And that's the kind of heart that Jesus is looking for in his disciples, in his followers. Those who are following him and applying what he's teaching them wholeheartedly, they're putting their all into it. And obviously, God's going to know whether we're doing that or not. God also looks for a heart whose absolute authority is his word. When he says in verse 17, it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one tiny stroke of a letter in the law to become void. 
this tiny stroke that Jesus is talking about is literally the accent mark that is used in the Hebrew language to distinguish one letter from another letter. The smallest mark. And Jesus says, not even an accent mark you better mess with if it's God's Word. Because the word void here means to lose authority or to no longer have force. And so Jesus is saying, the Word of God, even the accent mark, should always have authority and force in my life above everything else. And my heart will reveal that. My life will reveal that. Of where my heart is. And then this, this verse may seem totally disjointed in the context of what Jesus is saying, but I think it goes right along with it. When he says, everyone who divorces his wife and marries someone else commits adultery, and the one who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. And most people think, what's that have to do with what he just said? <laughs> this is what? A heart that keeps the commitments it makes. He's talking here. He's not going to get into a whole thing about divorce and remarriage. That's not what his, 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 his goal is to tell people that your life will reveal what you do with commitment. If you say you're going to do something, then your life is going to reveal whether you kept that commitment or you didn't keep that commitment. And obviously he uses a pretty big thing, marriage. But obviously he could have used thousands of illustrations because every day the choices and decisions we make are basically throwing out there whether we're committed or not and how committed we are. That's why our life reveals our heart. Finally, one of my favorite passages, beginning in verse 19, about the rich man and Lazarus. I, I want to read this passage because it's just, it's just so powerful. And then I have those things to share. Jesus then builds upon it, seeing life as a preparation for eternity. He says, there was a rich man who dressed in purple and fine linen who feasted sumptuously every day. But at his gate lay a poor man named Lazarus whose body was covered with sores. By the way, this wasn't the same Lazarus that he raised from the dead. Lazarus was just a very common name in Jesus' day. Who longed to eat what fell from the rich man's table. In addition, the dogs came and licked his sores. Now the poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in hell, as he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. So he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. And send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I'm in anguish in this fire. But Abraham said, child, remember Here's the key. Remember that in your lifetime, Jesus is saying, if you'd have just taken some time to think about your life before it was too late. Remember that in your lifetime, you received your good things and Lazarus likewise bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. Besides all this, a great chasm has been fixed between us so that those who want to cross over from here to you cannot do so and no one can cross from there to us. So the rich man said, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house. For I have five brothers to warn them so that they don't come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. They must respond to them. 
Then the rich man said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. And he replied to them, If they do not respond to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. One of the most, to me, important passages in the whole Bible where out of the lips of Jesus himself, he teaches on the sufficiency of the word of God. But before we get to that, a couple things. Notice in this passage, Jesus is teaching everyone is heading for eternity. Life needs to be looked at as a preparation for eternity. Even if we're here for 80, 90, 100 years, which is even in our day, pretty good lifespan compared to eternity, really? 10 million years from now? Is 100 years going to seem like a lot of time compared to forever? And yet, even as Christians, we begin to live this life if we don't take time to think about it every once in a while and we get caught up in this life and we're, we're, we forget that this life is to be lived in preparation for eternity. Because everyone dies. Everyone will die. Everyone is headed for eternity. I've done a lot of funerals in 28 years as a pastor. I will probably do many more. And then one day someone's going to do my funeral. Everyone is headed for eternity. And Jesus is teaching in this passage that eternity can be a great reversal of earthly life. One of the reasons why Jesus uses this particular story is because in Jesus' day, it was taught that if you were wealthy and you were abounding like the rich man, then you were being blessed by God. And then it was obvious that you were then going to go to heaven. And people who were poor and didn't have very much of this world's good, well, it must be because they've got a lot of sin in their life and they've done something that God is punishing them for and they'll probably end up in hell. So Jesus takes that common teaching and just turns it right on its head and takes it the whole different way because what we have in this life does not necessarily reflect where our heart is and what our spiritual life is like. And many people, just like the rich man and like Lazarus, when they go off into eternity, see a total reversal. There are going to be many on earth, just like there have been down through history, who were powerful people, rulers in this world. They had everything that the world had to give. And as soon as they shut their eyes in death, they had nothing. And they were ruined and they were lost and they were in an eternal separation from God for all of eternity. And the Bible even says one day men will even forget what their names are. But that there are people on this earth and have been throughout history who no man knows. They don't even get a 15 minutes worth of fame as far as the world goes. They live their life in total obscurity and they die and they end up in glory for all of eternity. Wealthy beyond measure. Jesus also is teaching here our place in eternity is locked in before death. Jesus very clearly says through Abraham, there's a chasm here 
Nobody can cross over to you to help you out over there and nobody over there can come here. The boundaries are fixed. Heaven is a prepared place for prepared people. And that preparation takes place on this side of death, on this side of eternity, not on the other side. Jesus said in John 14, In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And the Bible clearly says in 1 John 5.13 that we may know that we have eternal life. We don't have to wait till we die to figure out whether we have eternal life because it's not based on my good works and how good a person I am and God balancing my life and putting my life in us on a scale and seeing if the good works outweigh the bad works. It's based solely on my personal faith in Jesus Christ alone. And that's why John could say, these things were written that you might know that you have eternal life. Now, here. Are you prepared for eternity? Do you know where you would go if you were to die right now and go out into eternity? Do you know for sure? Do you have an absolute assurance and confidence that if you were to die tonight, you know you'd be with Jesus? If not, I would encourage you with all seriousness and with all urgency to make peace with God and ask Jesus Christ to be your Savior. This passage also teaches that our place in eternity is based upon our response to God's Word. And what I mean by place is not just that we get there. We don't have time to go into it tonight, but... One of the great truths the Bible teaches for Christians to try to wake them up and get them to see that salvation and just being satisfied to be saved and have my sins forgiven is never enough when I look at my life from God's perspective is that my role and my responsibility throughout eternity is going to be based on my faithfulness to God and His Word down here. That's why Jesus said through Abraham many times, they have Moses and the prophets. They must respond to them. And notice that the rich man said, well, if somebody went back from the dead, if, if God did a miracle, if they experienced something miraculous, that would change their heart. And notice what Abraham said. This is why this passage is so key. Abraham said, no. If they won't respond to Moses and the prophets, in other words, if they won't respond to the Word of God, if their heart is not receptive and open to the Word of God, then they won't respond to a miracle. Because the Word of God is living and powerful. And we've got to, we've got to get back as Christians and as a church and as God's people to elevate the Word of God and to go back to how powerful this book is. This book is God's life-changing message. It's changed my life, it's changed your life, and it can change other people's lives. And we've got to unleash this Word of God into the world. Because Jesus is teaching here that God's Word is sufficient. When He says... And again, I want to repeat this in verse 31. If they do not respond to Moses and the prophets, 
They will not be convinced. They will not be persuaded, even if someone rises from the dead. We know Jesus rose from the dead, and many did not believe. Because faith doesn't come by experience. Faith doesn't come by miracles. The Bible clearly teaches in the book of Romans, Paul said it, faith comes by what? Hearing. Hearing the Word of God. That's why as a church, we want to elevate this book. That's why what we do here is going to center around this book because we believe in this word. And we believe in the power of this word. It is the word of God. Very quickly. Many people ask me why... Why do I believe the Bible is the Word of God? I just want to share a couple things with you. First of all, science. Some of you go, science? You're going to get into that? Let me just share with you a couple things where science has verified that the Bible is the Word of God. First of all, the Bible taught long ago that the world was round. The Bible taught long ago that the world was suspended, hanging in nothing. The Bible taught long ago that our human bodies were made up of elements of the earth. I could go on and on. Everything that science discovers just verifies and backs up what the Bible has already told us. Archaeology. There has never been an archaeological find throughout history that has somehow disproven the Bible. In fact, archaeology has done just the opposite. Every archaeological find, every stone that they uncover, only verifies the Word of God. Dead Sea Scrolls. You could go on and on. The cities that they've uncovered. That skeptics throughout history said, oh, the Bible's wrong, it's a mistake. That city never even existed. Then back in the 1800s, oh, we discovered this city. Oh yeah, I guess the Bible was right. Prophecy. All the prophecies so far that the Bible has predicted, every one of them has come to pass exactly as God said. I ask any skeptic, show me one prophecy that the Bible has predicted would already happen that hasn't happened exactly as the Bible predicted. If you can show me one, I won't believe this is the Word of God. How about the supernatural continuity and unity of this book? This book is written by over 40 human authors over thousands of years. And yet, it has a unity of message to it that runs from Genesis throughout Revelation. It teaches that there is one problem, sin. There is one solution, salvation. There is one source, Jesus Christ. And there's one purpose for it all, the glory of God. And it runs throughout the Bible. Jesus himself taught this is the word of God. The people who wrote the book, the Bible, said this is the word of God. And you and I who've been changed by it know that this is the word of God. Because this message changed my life. And no one, no skeptic, no person can ever persuade me different. 
I know what this book does in my life, even every day. I know the power of this word. I've seen the power of this book in other people's lives. It is the word of God. So Jesus here tonight is just wanting his disciples, his learners, to pause for just a moment and say, guys, let's take about 15 minutes and let's, let's think about our life. And let's begin to see life as a stewardship. Let's begin to see our life as a revealer of what's in our heart. Let's begin to see life as a preparation for eternity. And let's think about our life so that, so that our life can begin to track with God. And we can begin to accompany Jesus on the same road that He's on. That's the best life. That's the abundant life that Jesus Christ came to give. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how powerful it is. We thank you that it changes lives. And we thank you, God, for giving us life. This very finite, fragile, yet precious life on earth a life that will only last a short time. As James says, it's a vapor. We appear for a very little time and then we vanish away. And yet, that's not the end. There's eternity out there. There's forever out there. And this life and how we live it and how we respond to God and His Word goes an awful long way to what eternity is going to look like for us. God, may each of us, even, even every week, just set aside 15 minutes to just get alone without distraction and just, just take some thought about our life. God, thank you for this life. May we live it for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Folks, thanks for being here tonight. Don't forget, next Tuesday, 6.30, special round of refreshments and more word. Thanks for coming.